Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Holly Goodman, shareholder with Gunster in South Florida. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are connecting with one of our members in Delaware. Joining us on the program is Lauren Russell, counsel with Young, Conaway, Stargett, and Taylor. Also joining us on the program today is Jay Sandys, Vice President of Organizational Development at Corporate Counseling Associates, Inc., based in New York City. It's also an ELA special service provider. Listeners will recall previous ELA Employment Matters podcasts where we examined issues of mental health, particularly as a serious outcome from this pandemic period. A preponderance of data from surveys and studies point to the negative psychological effects caused from the pandemic and show a major increase in the number of U.S. adults who report certain symptoms during the pandemic compared with surveys before the pandemic. Lauren and Jay will continue our discussion about this critical issue and especially its effects on employers, employees, and the workplace. We are encouraging our audience to submit their own questions for future episodes. If you have any questions about mental health in the workplace, please email podcast at ela.law with the subject line, Ask Dr. J, and we will feature your question on our next podcast. Lauren and Jay, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? Hi, Holly. Thanks for having us. Doing great. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here and doing very well, enjoying the spring weather that we have on the East Coast right now. Oh, absolutely. All right, guys, let's dive in. Jay, the pandemic has certainly elevated employee wellness to the forefront of our minds and created a greater sensitivity to mental health and wellness of employees. However, this is not a new issue, and professionals like yourself have been dealing with this for as long as there's been work. So can you give us some background on some of the key issues with regard to mental health that employees have been struggling with for years, whether it's in the workplace or at home while working remotely? Sure. So that's a great question. And I think this issue has been going on for a very long time. And to me, some of the the main mental health kind of things that we see are the same, ultimately the same, maybe in a different order or different intensity, but are very similar now during the pandemic and as the pandemic is ending as, as they were before. But our primary thing that we saw and that I personally saw is anxiety. That's maybe the biggest one, followed by depression. Substance abuse, we deal with a lot. It's, it's a little bit lower down in general, a little bit higher now during the pandemic, but in general, it's a little bit lower, but it definitely exists. Other stuff we've always seen, work-life balance and issues around boundaries with work time and dealing with family issues. So that's kind of the, the, some of the key things. Another one I just want to point out that's always been problematic and is really being looked at a little bit more now is stigma. And stigma really gets in the way of people seeking help. So we deal with a lot of different professionals, doctors, nurses, lawyers, judges, you know, et cetera. And the higher the level of the employee, the less chance that they're going to, first of all, call an EAP, but even seek mental health services at all. And yet a lot of those groups have really high levels of mental health issues high levels of suicide, higher than the general population. And so we really want to be able to reach out to them. And we've started creating targeted programs to reach them and also programs to really try to get to the root of stigma and make people feel a little bit more comfortable seeking help confidentially, you know, getting some services that they might not otherwise get unless it was a crisis. We're trying to be a little bit more proactive and get them earlier. 
I wonder, Jay, if you have had the experience that I have had in my practice, though it's very different than yours, of seeing that the pandemic heightened the prevalence of issues that we were already experiencing, as you said. And I've noticed with my clients that there was a period of just extraordinary sensitivity and willingness to work with their employees to address the demands of work-life balance, anxiety related to the pandemic. And now I'm starting to see a swing with some of my clients back to being less willing to tolerate and accommodate those kinds of issues. They sort of feel like the pandemic's over, let's move on, you know, buckle up. And just a lot less willingness to empathize as we come out of this. I agree with you. I mean, we've always argued that mental health issues impact productivity and impact the bottom line. They're closely associated with absenteeism, with poor productivity, with conflict, with you know, with all sorts of things. Billions of dollars lost every year around the world. And so we're always in favor of addressing mental health issues. It's kind of what we do. So we, we see it all the time. There were a lot of programs that, that were targeted towards stigma and reaching out and, and really empathizing and accommodating. And I agree with you. I, I think there's a little bit less of that now. We were dealing with a client today and they didn't seem to sympathize that much with a traumatic event and its impact on their employees. And they're just like, okay, just get back to work. Or what's the problem? How come you don't want to come back to the workplace? We know you're, you're going on vacation or you're traveling, you're doing other things. Why is it such a big deal to come back? And, and it is because it's a change. It's a change of routine. There's lots of changes that, you know, it's been two years that we've been working this way. And to, to shift back actually takes some doing. And there are some people who are still afraid of COVID or if they're immune compromised, especially, or other have other special needs, it's not quite as easy to switch back. So I also, I agree with you though, there, there's not as much empathy. We do empathy training, right? We do communication training. We're trying to get, you know, we're trying to train managers about how to identify and address mental health issues, you know, refer them to us in the workplace and to be a little bit more empathetic to the situation their employees are facing. But yeah, I think it's, I think people are like, okay, let's go back to business as usual, like it was before the pandemic, which really in my mind, isn't ever going to happen. I mean, it's funny that we, as I said, do different things. And I hear the exact same comments from my client. I was on Facebook and she was on a cruise. And if they're on a cruise, I don't know why they can't be here. And part of me certainly understands that argument. But to your point, I think it's, you know, the stresses on a cruise are a little bit different than the stresses in in a work environment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly so. (laughs) And I think, Jay, to your point, Certainly, it is something worth emphasizing with employers, this idea that the mental health of their employees does impact the company's production and their profitability. But historically, as Lauren's mentioning now, employers have not really thought about mental health in that way. And we are starting to see the regression back to the pre-pandemic philosophies. So Lauren, let me ask you from an employment law perspective, how has the law related to employee health changed? particularly over the last couple of years, and what improvements are employers making to hopefully keep some of those changes in play going forward? Excellent question. You know, these are all shockingly recent developments. I am of that generation that thinks of the 1990s as as only being a couple of years ago. (laughs) 
but that was really the the advent of legislation on on these kinds of issues. So we have the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, the Family and Medical Leave Act shortly thereafter, and frankly not a lot of development until uh, a major legislative initiative to update and amend the ADA with the aptly named ADA Amendments Act, which was passed in 2008. And then we really reached stasis, right? We had these laws that, you know, required employers first not to discriminate on the basis of somebody's disability. So just to say you're disabled, you're not as functional, I won't hire you or I won't promote you a requirement that disabilities be accommodated in the workplace. So I am able to work, but I have some differences in the way that I achieve particular outcomes and I need assistive technology, for example. And, you know, that's what we saw with the ADA. The ADA Amendments Act expanded in a lot of ways the definition of a disability. But besides accommodations and leave under the FMLA, There hasn't been a lot of discussion in sort of the broader community. We have a very active sort of disabilities advocacy community out there in the United States, but the legislative aspect of this was not coming about. And then we have, you know, this huge development of the FFCRA, which was the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. That was this landmark legislation in 2020 that provided for emergency paid sick leave and paid FMLA for issues related specifically to the pandemic. So parent absences from work to care for sick children or to care for a sick spouse. And of course, the emergency paid sick leave provided leave for employees in the workforce up to two weeks to recover from an infection with the coronavirus. We now look back at folks who have been infected two, three times with the coronavirus during the course of this pandemic and realize how insufficient two weeks might be. But I think We certainly have seen, in the absence of legislative efforts, a prevalence, particularly with larger employers, of EAP plans, employee assistance plans, and more affirmative efforts with accommodations. So all of the handbooks I write for my clients have provisions that say employees are encouraged to come forward before there are performance problems so we can work collaboratively to address differences or issues, whether they're novel or whether they've existed for the the duration. And I think that's really important. I'd love, you know, Jay's insight on some of these topics, but things that he's describing like depression and anxiety are not necessarily linear. It's not that I become depressed one day and I am permanently depressed until I am no longer ever depressed again. Very frequently it's cyclical, whether it's seasonal or it's triggered by particular events. And I think those kinds of realizations, like the law is wonderful and it provides protections. But until we come at these issues with empathy and with an an acknowledgement that even if I've never been depressed or anxious or had work-life balance issues, I need to start looking for those things in the symptomatic behavior I see for my employees in order for these laws to be effective. I just have, Lauren, a question for you. I actually love what you said about we're an employee assistance program, among other things. So we definitely want that. We want to encourage people to use services like ours. But some of the solutions I've also seen are are sort of practical on the ground, like more leave time, but also being able to bring your child to work and have daycare or, you know, vouchers for that or lots of different solutions. Is there anything prescribed like in the ADA or in any law that says employers have to provide services like that? Or is that just on their own 
you know, will if they if they choose to. It's largely employer driven, right? And market driven in some cases, right? I mean, the, the fascinating thing we're seeing with this really tight labor market is an expansion of a lot of these kinds of plans. I'm not seeing a lot of expanded empathy, but I am seeing expanded access to childcare and health insurance because you've, I mean, you've got to really be competitive. $15 an hour is not a pie in the sky minimum wage expectation anymore. I've got clients saying I'm offering 15, 20, 25 dollars an hour, and I can't get anybody. Like the people who are waiting at Home Depot to do day work jobs will not take 25 dollars an hour. We're seeing a lot of this coming about voluntarily because of market forces. But you know, the ADA requires that you provide accommodations, provided that they're not an undue hardship. I am not familiar with any case law off the top of my head that says something like childcare assistance is or is not an undue burden, but I would venture to guess that a court is not going to impose those kinds of obligations from the outside and say, gosh, employer, your employee was struggling with anxiety because they had a special needs child. And the special needs child is not the employer's issue, but the anxiety is. And employer, you must do something to fundamentally support that child. I think it's very unlikely just based on the sort of broader structure and expectations of employment relationships in America. There are countries where I could imagine that. This is not one of them. (laughs) Thank you, Lauren, for your answer. I appreciate that. The benefits make a difference too, right? People are having a hard time these days finding a therapist, um, especially who's in network. The insurance companies haven't done, in my opinion, haven't done a great job with paying therapists enough. So many people, including myself in my, in my private practice, I don't, I won't take insurance, but a lot of people have out of network benefits that pays a large part of, of any therapy fee. Uh, to me, that's a great solution if the employer offers it at a reasonable rate. So there's yeah. things like that employers can do to increase the access people have to mental health services. I would love to see those kinds of initiatives at a state level in an, in analogous situation, but not the same here in Delaware. A couple of years ago, there was actually a legislative initiative that said, you know, under Delaware insurance plans, as in most of the country, by the way, diagnosis of infertility is completely covered and treatment of infertility is not. So you can find out that you can't have a baby, but they will not help you have the baby, right? And so the Delaware General Assembly passed a law that said any insurance policy that is written in the state of Delaware must cover diagnosis and treatment. It seems so obvious to me that state legislatures should say insurance policies written in this state must cover substantive mental health support, right? So that we create the environment where people are in. Now, it doesn't immediately solve the problem, right? Because we've got to train the therapist to provide these services, but it creates the pipeline and the avenue by which we help to, I'm hearing the same thing, by the way, a lot of providers have left practice. We're really having employees report to their employers who then call me to complain (laughs) that they're really struggling to find treatment. I think with that in mind, that is a problem. And it's something that we are seeing as one of the side effects of the pandemic is that our mental health resources are overburdened and it's becoming more difficult for employees to utilize it. I'm curious, Jay, about your experience for you and those who work in the mental health world. If you have any recommendations for how employers can support their employees who are dealing with these mental health crises. Sure. So it's some of the stuff I said already, but you know, we've done a lot of work going into organizations and promoting the EAP, training managers about how to identify mental health issues. 
And just to be clear, we don't want them to, to diagnose or treat anybody, but we just want them to see some of the signs, right? Especially because people are working remotely much more often these days. It's much harder to see if someone say has an alcohol problem or is really depressed or anxious, you know, are they getting their work done? Like looking at productivity even is a really good way. Are they able to get their work done? Is it on time? Is it done well? How are they getting along with other people? How are their presentations? Do they, do they seem really anxious? You know, are they taking off a lot of time? There's a lot of different signs they can look for. Again, we don't want them to diagnose. We want them to bring it to us. And then we will you know, talk to the person of a counselor that'll do that. And just having managers be aware of what to do really makes a difference. Another thing is actually not quite related to mental health, but I think impacts it a lot, which is the efficiency, you know, how management works and the efficiency of the workplace. And so doing trainings on basic management skills actually makes a difference in terms of mental health. There's other things we've done also like setting up peer assistance programs. And that's something we do with some populations that because it's such a stigmatized issue, people are reluctant to seek help anywhere, as I, as I said earlier, but speaking to a peer, that's different. So we train the peers, we sort of set up a program, we have like kind of a back office support role once it gets, once it gets going, and we connect peers with people who we want to speak with them. And sometimes it's the first step for getting, you know, mental, you know, professional mental health services. And sometimes it's just a stress reliever. So it's just another way for them to feel supported. Other methods are just increasing access. So while, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of some of the, the text therapy or you know, stuff like that, but it does give access to people who might not otherwise have it. So I have to say, as much as I, I don't love it, I don't think it replaces in-person or direct care with, you know, with a professional, you can still get some support that way. And, and so there's, there's lots of online tools that I think are, are cost-effective and can really be helpful for people. And the other stuff is really some of the practical stuff I said before, you know, flexible uh, schedules, allowing people to work from home, if it makes sense, being transparent about communication, promoting and, and really addressing any kind of stigma, but promoting mental health, having you know, benefits that help with that, all that kind of stuff makes a big difference. So then Lauren, what kind of legal advice do you find yourself giving your clients as it relates to the work environment or mental health or even remote working? Are there specific policies that you recommend to address some of these recommendations that Jay has brought forth on how employers can help to support their employees in the workplace? Yes and no, right? I mean, good policies are always a wonderful thing. Every employer who is subject to the FMLA and the ADA should have really great developed policies and practices about how you raise these concerns with employees. Remember, when an employer has sufficient information to believe that an employee may be subject to FMLA, they have a duty to raise that. And so there should be, you know, consideration given to how we're going to approach all of these issues before you find yourself in the middle of a hot mess. But, you know, the, the bigger issue, I think, is a cultural shift. And I think that's the work that Jay is doing, right, of, of training businesses and employees. And I am so hopeful for the future when I see the types of education that my young children are being given in school, talking about anxiety management and respectful communication. My kids come home with breathing techniques and, and all kinds of things that are just really amazing that, that were never talked about when I was young. 
to talk about just the everyday anxiety. Life is stressful, even if you don't have a diagnosed anxiety disorder and how we cope with those things and, and how we move forward. So, you know, the cultural shift is essential. The last piece of advice that I would give is actually something that I picked up from one of my mentors when I was quite young in my practice. You know, there's a lot of legal risk in talking about disability in the workplace. I cannot ask my employees, are you disabled? Or if I do, I'm going to create a lot of legal liability. And it's very problematic for a whole host of reasons, some of which are relational and some of which are legal. But, you know, he always gave what I think is the best advice about managing legal liability under the ADA with being human. And so he says, when you have an employee who's struggling, you think, with some kind of issue that they haven't disclosed, the one foolproof question you can ask is, what can we do to help you? It opens the door to them, you know, disclosing if they have an issue and they'd like to, but it also actually starts the legally required accommodation discussion, right? What accommodations do you need without me throwing a bunch of jargon at somebody, right? It starts with being human and saying, what can I do to be there and support you? And I just, I love that. My colleague will always sort of be front and center in my mind for being a wonderful lawyer and a good human being for sharing that bit of advice. I love it. it there's a lot of synergy with, with what we're both saying, right? Because we're also saying exactly that, that we, we want to train managers and leaders to ask how, you know, how are you doing? How can we help? And to, to really notice and care about what's going on with your employees, you need not have a mental health diagnosis to seek help, right? That's a, that's a big misnomer. People say, oh, you know, I'm not diagnosed with anything. I don't think I meet the criteria. It's like, it's okay. You know, it just, that, that's what a lot of the peer assistance is about too. It's really just connecting with somebody so you can feel better. So we can prevent you from, from having an issue in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's always, I think the key to Lauren pitching these types of things to our clients, right? Is I think that they all go hand in hand, having healthy, happy, productive employees is better for the business. And there are ways that you can support your employees that are also going to reduce your risk. And so it's really just a win-win for everybody, I think. And so it's been a really great opportunity to chat with the two of you here today. This has been a very interesting and equally important discussion and one that the ELA will continue addressing for our listeners on future podcasts. Thank you so much for your time today, Lauren and Jay. Thank you. Sure thing. Thanks a lot. If you would like to connect with Lauren or Jay, please click on their bios in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. As a reminder, we would love to answer your questions about mental health in the workplace. If you have any questions we didn't answer on today's episode, please email podcast at ela.law with the subject line, Ask Dr. J, and we will feature your question on our next episode. Also, search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Holly Goodman, and thanks for listening.